had Natasha Stagg on the other day, someone I was really, really excited to talk to. It was actually like our first time talking other than some DMs and stuff like that. But that was a cold straight up like I'm a fan. Yo, would you talk to me on this stupid fucking thing that I do? Thank you so much. I'm honored. Uh, She's so smart and I love her perspective on places that very few people pay attention to or even have the opportunity to pay attention to so I find myself relating to her and having her writing resonate with me in in ways that you know I really find very few contemporary authors I see things that are like that are old where I can find parallels to times in New York City you know specifically like the early 80s but I find very few people who write about my times in ways that I learn things that I feel more connected and Natasha does that so it was really really exciting for me to connect with her uh I had first of all like a lot of people have responded that they either read her and were psyched to dig into the episode or listened to the episode and are reading her now but I love how many people in my life already read her which is it's it's very validating that like okay cool we're doing this right (laughs) and I'm surrounding myself with the right people so that was nice feedback to get I don't really do introductions on this show I kind of just dive in and we just talk and I'm you know in in the frame of mind of like yeah just fucking google this person if you want to know who they are like I put a little bit in a description but I'm more like let me add to this rather than like summarize like I don't want to spend the entire episode just giving you her biography so we just go right in and and yeah like I guess if you don't know and you are not a googler then maybe it's a little jarring I don't know I'm sorry but but yeah that that was that was what a couple people said so uh yeah, I mean, Surveys was her first novel after almost a decade as a journalist, essayist, interviewer, interviewee on topics ranging, you know, I guess she's most famous for her, like, kind of fashion and celebrity stuff. But it's a lot of just, like, New York analysis and internet analysis and, and culture. Um, and her first novel... Surveys is about a, a, a girl who it, it's 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 a comment on you know our how we connect today and it's a girl who becomes famous you know influencer type connects with another you know an actor who's and they go on this journey and uh, it's it's a character you know it's a character it's just a setup for us to explore these characters that she sees really really in depth. And the new book, both are published by Semia Text, which is probably my favorite publisher, period, Chris Krauss. Um, I first, you know, I first read Semia Text with I Love Dick, and it's just a wonderful... Chris Krauss was one of, was like intimidating to me the first time I read her. 
it expanded like when I was a kid when I was you know in my late teens I discovered like micro memoirs stuff like that and that was like a big pathway for me as a as a writer because I had these weird teachings about I always loved film and I was always really obsessed with with making stuff but I was taught almost not to make stuff that I wasn't allowed that there were these huge barriers to entry that like you know it's like write what you know but you have to do all this research and stuff I remember being super intimidated by that like I remember this screenplay book I mentioned it in one episode I forget if it was Natasha's episode or not but that like a screenwriting book that I read of like how to write a screenplay that's what I used to do I used to read books of like how to write a screenplay how to make a movie how to make a short film there were literally books called like how to make a short film as opposed to a feature film this is absurd this is like not the way to live not the way to make things but I bought into it I don't know and I believed it I believed a lot of stuff and I remember this one book, I never, like, this stuck with me forever, that they, they used Michael Crichton, like, the Andromeda Strain, or one of his scripts, as an example, and it talked about all the research that he did. And it was like, and I loved Congo, I remember. And so I bought, I, I bought into this, that I, I couldn't write a script, because I needed to research like Michael Crichton, and I'm not trained like him, I'm not, you know, that advanced. And I, for years, I was just like paralyzed from doing anything because of this bullshit. And then when I discovered micro memoirs, I, I know it's like a whack ass term, but like, yeah, like that's what it was called when I, when I got into it and just like short personal stories, you know, it, they were just like my entry point of like, oh shit, I could write whatever the fuck I want. Let me just do that. And my micro memoirs turned into screenplays really quickly that was just like oh wow this this eight page story can be a script like oh that's my research great i can i see how the visual aspect of this will go and those were the first films that i made like in college but when i discovered chris kraus and dick hebdige who was the dick of i love dick i didn't know at the time but i, I actually read them both in the same period of time not knowing it wasn't revealed until years later that Dick Hebdige was was Dick and I Love Dick. But I read Subculture or, or probably before I Love Dick, actually. And yes, yeah, so this kind of writing, this kind of like autofiction blew up my world. And it was like, it, it was sort of like, it, it's like the filmmaking of writing. You can do so many different things. You can have voices, you can have... Like, like it redefined what poetry meant to me and it made the meditation the the practice of reading into something active so like active in a whole different way like so it talks about Kathy Acker a lot Chris Krause does and Olivia Lang and, 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 and a lot of writers talk about her but you know Kathy Acker like you read Kathy Acker I'm going to do episodes where I just straight up read Kathy Acker uh, I'm not right now because it's like super rough and uh, I don't think people need that right now. Uh, like I, someone borrowed my friend who's here, who's a mother of four, uh, came to my house the other day and and saw Kathy Acker Blood and Guts in high school, and she was like, "Oh, can I read this?" And I was like, "I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just yeah, like, it's it's rough." And she got ten pages in and flipped out. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read that, but I'll wait like a month or two. Uh, but. 
the active nature of reading books that Semiot Text publishes is so exciting. It changes reading for me. It's like it redefines what, like, you know, read slow. Like, read slow originally just meant to me, like, really get into a book and get into its world. But reading Kathy Acker, reading Chris Krause, it, it, it's like watching a film. All your senses are alive. It's almost like my eyes are closed and you're in a dream state. So Natasha being part of this group is so dead on because her writing is 360 degrees. She really makes just every everything, every topic she takes. Like I just, you know, like I'll read, I'll read, I won't read like more like a bunch in a row because she always like hits me really hard and I want to live with it and I want to like filter it into my day. And oh yeah. So Sleeveless is, is her newer one from 2019. And it's just, it's a bunch of, it's a compilation of essays over 10 years from, uh, from 2011 to 2019. And like it starts in, you know what I was going to read, I'm going to read the first one and the last one I was going to read. I was going to start with naming names, but I'm going to read cafeteria first because it's really special to me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like New York essays and it's just about shit that like not a lot of people know about. And so it resonates so deeply with me, but I think that she writes in such a way that, that anyone can, can enjoy it. Um, okay. So I'm going to read cafeteria, which is very short. And then I'm going to read naming names, which is still kind of short, but longer. Okay, so uh, cafeteria. If you don't know what cafeteria is, it is the spot. It was um, when I used to go to Bungalow Eight in college. You know, like late high school through college. Uh, this would have been you know two thousand three, four, five that era. Cafeteria was the after. It was twenty four seven late night diner. Uh, Bianca worked there. I didn't know her when she did, but that's how Carolina and Bianca met. I don't, like my ex-girlfriend, um, my ex-girlfriend's ex-girlfriend picked her up when she was waitressing at cafeteria. I didn't know them until years later, but that's how they first met when Bianca first moved to New York. That was her, that was her job. She was the cool, hot, blue haired chick at, uh, at cafeteria or she, I think she was blonde then. And she went blue when she really wanted to like be like I'm gay everybody look at us how hot we are <laughs> and I was never the yeah, cafeteria was like done by the time by the time that was happening but <laughs> I used to go way earlier uh, but it blew up from sex in the city and now I haven't been in years but I live around the corner I live on 15th and 6th and it's on 17th and 7th and I walk by it all the time, but um, I never go. There's always a line outside late night, but it was the spot. So Natasha's writing about it, I guess it looks like 2012, when it was still, that was like pre-Bianca working there. It was, it was still a spot. It wasn't like as cool as it was, but it was still a spot. I would still go there sometimes. Um, okay, I'm going to read. Cafeteria. They meet at cafeteria because the characters in Sex and the City did that. The New York of that era is not the same as the New York of today. But while the show aired, viewers argued that it wasn't that it wasn't of a real New York. 
So the collective city, the idea that became known as another main character, which was New York in quotes or female friendship or whatever was under your nose the whole time, is as real as anything on TV and therefore hasn't changed. The group of friends is two men who have been dating for some time, a woman who has known them each for longer, and a recent transplant to New York who met the other three, th- the other three weeks ago, a, a guy each member of the group would like to fuck. The week is New York Fashion Week, Fall 2012, which happens in icy February, but people are wearing the spring collections. It's early, but everyone orders tequila cocktails. The menu boasts that cafeteria is a haven for the stars of New York nightlife. The ones who still get name-checked in magazine stories, effusively described as legendary, the original versions of the new somethings. In the days of interview expense accounts, said one of the friends, a journalist would take a club kid out all day and get trashed, making sure the only, the, making sure the story only described how magnetic and charismatic this person was. The world was her oyster type things. But the writer got something out of this too. The scam was that the parties were cooler because they were getting written up while the writers were getting to go to the coolest parties because they had the power to make them so. That was when the parties were cool. Parties are still cool, said the recent transplant. I went to a cool one last night. I'm still kind of fucked up from it. Oh my God. Getting fucked up is cool, said the woman. Never won't be, will it? I can see it going out of style. I was sitting at an adjacent table, eavesdropping and looking at my laptop. I caught a few names and ended up finding all of them. The woman was a curator, the two men music producers, and the younger man worked at a secondhand store. They talked about how none of them ever wanted to be famous, how they were disappointed by a recent collaboration between an artist famous for critiquing capitalist values and Topshop, and how broke they all were. I didn't know of that artist, or which lower-rung nightlife stars they were avoiding eye contact with in the booth across the restaurant, or whether, when they said interview expense, expense accounts, they meant the magazine interview. In the days of interview accounts, though, they said everything could be expensed, including helicopters to the Hamptons. I guessed that every single one of them wanted to be stars, with the sky as the limit. I saved all of their information and waited until the next day to email one of them, starting with the curator. I know now that I was correct and that I am closer to all of them for it. I understand that the best thing to be in New York is watched and heard, and that if those chats around Cosmos in the TV show weren't written for an audience, they wouldn't be so optimistic. No character was doing so so well that the city could feel like a supportive friend to her. You can't move here and expect to be able to live the way the locals do, relaxing into their adult lives, frequenting their favorite Manhattan haunts, maintaining deep-rooted friendships. Instead, the best you can hope for is to make friends who make time for you and who would not disagree when you publicized your closeness. Would they put you on a guest list? Depends. The curator was kind and opened up to me quickly. She couldn't wait to meet me and to introduce me to the artists she worked with. She had been to the part of New Jersey where my family was from because she'd been a last-minute date to a wedding there. She loved it, she said. The parties in New York, I told the group, they could still be good, as long as they're sponsored well. Yes, they said, and who cares about a little advertising? They are my friends now. I am their publicist. (laughs) 
I love that piece. And I sent it to, uh, I sent it to Bianca and I sent it to Jackie, my, my high school girlfriend. Cause we used to go there and you know, just lots of, yeah, I know those people so well. And Natasha does a great job describing the scene. Um, okay. I'm going to read one more. It's called Naming Names, and this is the final chapter. So that was the first, that was the opening of, of Sleepless, and this is the, the closing. It's a series of essays. <clears throat> Naming Names. A new magazine created entirely by women was being launched, and every article in it was about a woman or things that women would appreciate. All the subjects were, B-list, were, were the B-listers publicists loved to promote, the ones who liked to be interviewed, the ones who had the time. None of the editors were people I'd worked with, so I didn't know who they were. When I thought about it, most magazines were already run by women and about women anyway. I took a car to the launch party from my office because I was running late. I was relieved to be alone for 10 minutes smelling of my forbidden euphoria sample. The party was for women only, no plus ones. A smiling publicist with an iPad checked me in at the door and ushered me up an elevator. Another woman joined me there and smiled. Are you a member? She asked. I'd forgotten I was entering a club. I'm not. Are you? No, but I wish I was. Isn't it great here? We were supposed to be celebrating the exclusion of male voices in the classic setting of conspiracy. When we entered the room designated for the dinner, conflicting messages papered a reception pedestal. A copy of the first issue of the magazine was available, as was a brochure about joining the club, and a press packet about a new fragrance called Beau. The fragrance was the sponsor of the party, and so the room had been renovated to reflect its branding. Glass bottles, an abstracted form recognizable as a male and a female torso embracing in miniature, stood on the tables as centerpieces. Jeez. (laughs) A group of women I knew peripherally from art and and literary events were dressed in matching designer outfits that the sponsor had paid them to wear. I said hello and nervously followed them to another room set up for hair and makeup, only to realize that it was reserved for the outfitted influencers only. I could wait in line for a light touch-up if I wanted outside. The girls spread out on the shearling rug and took pictures of one another, laughing about the commodification of feminism they were participating in. Women are so trendy right now, one said, describing a pink-covered collection of essays written by women to which she'd contributed. They had to have seen me standing just outside the room, but when I walked away, no one said anything. At the club again, a DJ... It's funny how DJ is written. (laughs) A DJ I had met once years ago talked to me, to my surprise. She asked why any of us were there and what this was about. I had no idea, I said. No offense, but why does does this super-gendered magazine have a gender-non-conforming person on the cover? We were called to find our name cards at a seated dinner. An all-female staff wearing tuxedos gathered around each table and readied the offerings with oversized utensils. At the nod of a head, the synchronized staff gently dropped the components of our meals on wide white plates. I listened while a writer, an editor, and a filmmaker discussed what kinds of dogs do well in the city and the best preschools on the Upper East Side. I heard that one preschool was for absolute delinquents. I heard that some socialite couple I'd never heard of had started an open relationship just after getting married. I finished my meal quickly and left alone, relieved to enter the cold air outside. Like deep breaths, I inserted my headphones and lit a cigarette. The Manhattan lights at night looked far away as I walked like this wasn't my city. I regularly listened to the podcasts of several acquaintances, although I hated my reactions to them. 
By their nature, one can't agree with everything said on a podcast, and so I felt like I was listening in on a conversation in which I couldn't participate. And then all of my friends asked me if I listened to one or the other, and their reactions seemed so uncomplicated. It's so bad, or it's so good. Everyone was trying to be controversial again, and I didn't want to discourage that by any means. Besides, I couldn't throw any stones. My friend's book was finally being released, the one I'd written an afterword for, the one with capital A, abuse in the title, at not the best time. I understood why some people just couldn't talk about certain things now. I had written some autofiction, there we go, <laughs> and submitted it to a magazine that only published it after cutting something that was apparently too pointed. This is what it said, quote, I used to think that my ex's position at such an esteemed and intellectual magazine said something about him, something I was supposed to like. Now it was clear, though, that the part of him that participated in the magazine, its pretentious parties hosted at a perverted old man's mansion with the same white swing band and the same buffet meal and the same rumors about a Coke-fueled S&M party starting at 3 a.m., its fancy dinners that always chose one token ethnic person to award among the old standbys and hot writers, its ridiculous editor who never asked me about my writing but instead told me how great my boyfriend was and who apparently had angered plenty of young female writers by coming on to them or worse, was the part I hated most about him. Said editor left the magazine shortly after I wrote that part, before the piece was published, without it. Legally, I was told I couldn't include it, but that meant politically, since all the other things in there were just as bad. If I had a podcast, it would be a disaster. Even the art I like becomes the art I hate, or vice versa. I felt really in love with my boyfriend when, weeks after a long, drunk speech about the Ramones actually truly sucking, he put on a Ramones song while getting dressed in his room and said, What was I thinking? The Ramones are so good. I love them so much. I looked at a series of verified Instagram posts about a corporation's efforts to educate and become educated about digital sustainability. Videos asked techpreneurs, students, and professors what digital sustainability was, and like a parody show, they all came up with paper-thin answers at odds with the one before it. We must keep abreast of new solutions, find the best way to adapt to shifts occurring everywhere, make sure to eliminate the excessive, and recycle the emergent. Mine, young minds. The secret sauce. Innovation where you least expect it. All the comments were enthusiastic and kind, congratulating the brand for trying to think differently for once. I listened as podcasters described the political state as a tone being played continuously, its pitch getting higher with no sign of a drop. They described worshipping chaos in these troubled times. They described a world in which everyone is a corporation, the inverse or neoliberal version of corporations are people. I watched a lecture about how the Earth's surface has been crusted by a layer of design, that boundaries of every type are mutable since they are man-made. I watched another about scarcity becoming less desirable in the area of luxury, and what that could mean for consumerism. Everything I watch and listen to is coming from a person using a platform to sell a product. They sell art, tote bags, and t-shirts that come in vinyl bags. But more than that, they're all selling themselves. And I am too. And I hate myself for it. But even more, I hate that I believe I'll disappoint people if I quit. Dinner conversations revolve around the millennial and Gen Z terms anxiety, borderline personality disorder, and triggered. And we have to agree despite our derision of their overuse, that people of a certain age are suffering from certain experiences unknown to us that deserve new terminology. 
I would always rather be in a conversation than listening to a podcast, but I must listen to every episode of the podcasts made by my friends. There is a manageable amount now, and I've only read the manuscripts of three friends who wrote, about, who wrote books about themselves so far, and I liked the feeling of guessing who the characters with changed names were, although mostly, I just thought it would be better if the names were real. When I read the book by someone who doesn't like me about her own life, I was fascinated by her description of me, and also by her, and also by the way she promoted herself and her book. In interviews I of course read, searching for another mention of myself, or of someone I know, she decided she was very brave for writing about it, real events, blinded by urgency to the ways it might offend real people. I wondered who it offended, since everything is so abstracted. Bitterly, I thought that she was not brave at all. I'm not naming names either, to be clear. My boyfriend and I saw a movie with one of the stars I'd interviewed for a magazine once. I hardly remembered speaking with her. She's Elvis's granddaughter. She was promoting a TV show in which she plays an escort, I said. In similar discussions, I said, I interviewed her slash him about John Cale, Glenn Danzig, Jenna Malone, Laura Dern, Colin Farrell, Annabella Lewin, A.F. Vandervorst, Christina Ricci, Yorgos Lanthimos, Sarah Silverman, Nick Jonas, Anton Yelchin, Walter Van Burendonk, Jungle Pussy, B.J. the Chicago Kid, Olivia Cook, Cruella, Alice Bag, Carl Glusman, Donita Sparks, Kaliuchis, Bibi Rexa, Tove Lowe, Cameron, Melissa Oftermar, Lynn Tillman, Dita Von Teese, Urs Fischer, Barbie, Terry Castle, Linda Ramone, Marilyn Manson, and so many blonde models. Paige Riefler, Stella Maxwell, Haley Baldwin, etc. And I'd say that I'd moderated interviews with Gigi and Bella Hadid, China Machado, Selena Gomez, James Franco, Sean Avery, Courtney Love, and Lana Del Rey. And that I'd facilitated photo shoots with Kembra Fowler, Dan Graham, Lydia Lunch, Martin Rev, Thurston Moore, Molly Ringwald, Tama Janowitz, Richard Hell, Pat Place, and James Chance. Those were the ones that came up naturally in conversation, though. There were so many others that no one had heard yet, or since that I can't remember anymore. Mostly, there wasn't a good story to go with the anecdotes. The, subject were e the subjects were either very used to be getting interviewed, or they were not especially interesting to talk to, their interesting qualities being their collaborative projects, or they were not especially interested in talking to me. Anyway, I didn't become friends with any of them. I interviewed Chloe Sevigny at Veselka in the East Village. She was friendly and unpretentious, and when she learned we had friends in common, she invited me to a party and chose to ride the train with me when we left even opening her mail in front of me. When the interview came out, it was reduced to a Q&A, basically a transcript of our conversation, edited for length, basically all gossip, which I always loved about her. One line was picked up by tabloids. She'd said she found the media presence of a young actress annoyingly vulgar. I thought that part was great. I was standing in front of a bar on the Lower East Side one night when she walked up to me, flanked by Kim Gordon and Lizzie Bugatsis. I smiled, thinking we were friends now. She hissed, you threw me under the bus then turned to enter the bar next door before I could stutter my response. The woman on either side of her laughed at my pained expression and followed her. I told our mutual friend about it, who happened to be in the bar, and the, the bar I then entered. You'll learn about this, she said. The experience had a surprisingly deep effect on me. It's true. I didn't want to apologize, but I didn't want to defend my industry either. What I didn't understand was that if Chloe didn't like the coverage of her slight, why had she said it? When I see her around New York, I avoid her path, even though I'm sure she's over it. 
this total non-event in the grand scheme of her life, a life I consider a truly compelling and genuine expression of cinematic form. No one has a career like her, like hers. I still think she is very cool, but I didn't for a while after that exchange. Do you ever want to do that sort of thing again? My boyfriend asked me about interviewing celebrities. I said I had no interest at all, although I still loved them and loved finding out about their lives. It was because I loved them that I didn't want to keep meeting them, I said. A famous white rapper once got my number and tried to meet up with me late night. I said it meant nothing to me because I knew he just wanted to be interviewed. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> to be invited to something. So, to see, that, that, that's what's great about it because that guy, like, he doesn't want to fuck. Like, he, sure, he does, but, like, it's more important to him to be interviewed by Natasha than to sexually harass her. That's where our culture is today. Like, what a fucking insight. I'm highlighting that. Highlighted in my Kindle. <laughs> Onward. To be invited to something as someone other than press, I said, was the best feeling. After being invited to so many things as that, although I did sort of miss the invitations, I turned so many down they'd stop coming as frequently. What I had to remember was that the reason I didn't like going to these things was that I was too sensitive for them. When you meet up with a celebrity, it feels like a date, except you know that for them, it's an obligation. My boyfriend and I got a huge fight in the Lower East Side. While it was happening, I had the thought, it feels like this has happened before. I yelled that he lied, and two pretty women walking past me asked me if I was okay. Not sure if we were okay, just me. Girly, are you sure? Looking out for domestic abuse. I said I was fine, but thank you. I wanted to thank them again. This was more than he could handle, and he walked back to his apartment, which started multiple phone calls and hang-ups and tired texts, and finally I was back at the bar having a drink alone, and an older man tried to buy me another drink. I said I was leaving, and he ordered me to put his number in my phone, which I did, and then he ordered me to text him, which I didn't. Outside the bar, a guy screamed my name like we were best friends, and he had forgotten to tell me he was in town. He also ordered me to put his number in my phone, which I did, and I texted him, but he had no idea what his name was since, <laughs> but, but had no idea what his name was since I'd only met him once before, probably 10 years ago, while sharing cocaine in an apartment. I don't remember why. I was so completely in love and heartbroken, thinking that maybe it wasn't the last time I would be. I remembered being alone on my roof in the summer, single, and enjoying it. Had I enjoyed it, or had I taken photos of myself to feel distracted? Could I be alone again, I thought, as long as I didn't know that's what I was. And that's it. That's the end of her book. It's essays, so it's not like a uh, spoiler. But I fucking love her book so much, and I'm really enthused by the reactions that y'all have been sending me to the episode. So, yeah. Uh, keep it real. Go read Natasha's books and articles and stuff. If you are a publisher or a magazine or some shit like that, hit her up. Hire her. Because, like, you can't do any better. It's She's the best. Thanks for listening. <laughs>